morning. Uh, you likely know or have an idea at least of where Birmingham, Alabama is. Um, and so if you start at Birmingham, Alabama, and you drive southwest on I-20 for about an hour and 45 minutes, you will come to the middle of nowhere, okay? This is Sumter County, Alabama. Let's see hands for everyone who's been to Sumter County. Yes. Oh, well, we have one. That's awesome. Yeah. Sumter County, it really is the middle of nowhere. And there in Sumter County, there is a little church um, called Bethel Chapel. And it was built in 1908, actually by some of my ancestors and some other people from the community there. And if you walk out behind the chapel, uh, you might guess what you would find. It's a cemetery. And that cemetery is full of some really old graves, right? Um, there are headstones that are cracked and falling apart. There are names that are so faded, you can't read them anymore. Um, and, and some aren't so old, though. And there's one there with a name on it. And that name is Weston Rogers Stewart. Now, Weston uh, was my little brother. And he was born with a rare chromosomal defect. And he didn't quite live to the age of one. And he is buried there alongside uh, many of our ancestors. And probably one day I'll be buried there, unless Jesus returns before that. And it's sad that Weston died young, uh, but I'm not talking about him or bringing him up to try and, and make us sad this morning. The truth is, Weston, he's been dead for a long time now. Uh, I, I go long periods of time without thinking about him. And most people who know me, they don't even know I ever had a brother. And I, I think that, you know, once my parents and I are dead and gone, uh, it's likely that no one will even remember that Weston existed, right? It's like he'll kind of vanish from reality. Except for that tombstone down at the Bethel Church in Sumter County, Alabama. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that tombstone that sits there. Because I, I want people to know that Weston was that he lived and had a family that cared about him and loved him. And I don't want him to be forgotten. You know, we're about to celebrate Memorial Day. And it's this time when our country remembers the members of the armed forces who have died. It's a day that serves the same purpose as Weston's tombstone, right? To make sure that people are not forgotten. If you stop and think about it, our lives are probably full of memorials. We have tombstones and pictures, heirlooms, letters, things that we keep so we won't forget people who are gone or moments from the past. Now, the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, I'd like us to spend a minute there this morning, it begins in a grim, harsh place. The first words of, of the book of Joshua are, after the death of Moses. It begins with the loss of their leader, the guy who led them out of Egypt, who stood up to Pharaoh. He's the one that, that parted the Red Sea. He talked with God face to face on Mount Sinai, and he is dead. And so this question hangs in the air. You can feel it as you read that first sentence after the death of the Moses. The question is, can Joshua do it? Can he be a faithful leader like Moses was? And the first several chapters set out to answer that question. You know, the first thing they do in the book of Joshua is they send spies to Jericho, and it looks like disaster is coming, and they'll be caught. But a prostitute, Rahab, hides them, and they manage to escape. So Joshua 1, doubters 0, right? But it's not a very convincing victory, and so something a little more impressive maybe is needed. Their next problem is that to get at Jericho, they have to go across the Jordan River. 
And so uh, look, listen to what the Lord says in Joshua 3, 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So what do you think happens when they get to the Jordan River? Just like with Moses, right? The water parts. It separates. And they cross on dry ground. And God is making it very clear that, yes, Joshua is the man for the job. And this is a big moment because it's the start of a new thing for all of Israel. There's this new leader, and they're entering the promised land, and God is the one making it all happen. And it's in that context of this brand new thing, this new leader, this promise finally coming to realization that chapter 4 of Joshua happens. I want to read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. And when your children ask in time to come, What do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. The people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. See what Joshua does here. They pile up twelve rocks from the middle of the Jordan River, a place no one can get to because it's in the middle of a river. And, and so it really stands out. It's unique. And they do it so that one day their children will see these stones and they'll wonder. They'll say, What are those stones about? And then they'll tell them. They'll tell them the story. And that is what a memorial does. It makes people wonder. It makes them ask so that we can tell the story. Sometimes people today will wear crosses, or maybe we get a fish tattoo, or wear cheesy Christian t-shirts, right? But we do it so that people will ask, so that people will wonder, and we'll get to tell the story. But this morning, I want us to consider a different sort of memorial. Um, turn over to 2 Corinthians. That's where we'll spend the rest of our time today in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. If you're a person who highlights or underlines their Bible, I think it's worth underlining known and read by everyone, that you are known and read by everyone. 
Paul says, your life, your story is a living memorial. You are the stack of stones in the Jordan. You are the tombstone in Sumter County. Your story is the thing that people are supposed to look at and say, what does that mean? Why are you doing that? Who, who is your God? We are supposed to be living memorials. And to Paul, this idea seems to go really deep. Throughout his letters, he frequently appeals to not only his message, but the way in which he shares it, the life he lives, as evidence of its veracity and its reliability. And this passage in 1 Corinthians 3 illustrates it quite plainly. A transformed heart, in Paul's mind, is the best proof of Christ's active presence. There's something especially powerful about a living memorial. And so what I'd like to do uh, the next few times that I get to share this time with you, I'd like to look deep into how Paul describes his witness. I want to get a good idea of the, the attitudes he takes on, of the lengths that he'll go to, the things he'll never let go of, and what he is willing to give up in order to make sure that people see and hear and experience Jesus when he is around. And I really want to get this right uh, because... If we're honest, I think we'll admit that the church um, in our country and even just throughout history, we have a mixed track record, right, when it comes to the quality of our witness. And on a, a deeply personal level, I have friends who aren't interested in Jesus anymore, not because of what Jesus says um, or did, but because of what some Christians have said or done. I know it's, it's not our role to police the witness of every Christian in America, nor is it possible. But I think it's quite plainly our calling to best consider how our witness can invite people into a real, genuine, transforming relationship with Jesus to be living memorials. And I think that Paul's writings are a great place to find help toward that end. Now, uh, if you are someone who reads the bulletin, uh, you may have seen that we have 10 seniors from Southside that have just graduated from high school. Uh, here's their names. And, and there, you know, there's a whole host of emotions that go along with graduating. I think if I can remember back correctly, um, then I was mostly feeling victorious, right? That, I think that was the biggest feeling I felt, that the primary pursuit and challenge of my life up to that point was finally over. It was completed, and it felt good. Uh, there was also some excitement about what was next. You know, a new phase of life, new people, new opportunities. The possibilities seemed endless. But lurking behind the excitement and future possibilities was this nagging question. Am, am I good enough? Can I do this? What if I fail? What if it turns out I'm just not adequate for what lies ahead? And that question has likely surfaced in the thoughts of our recent graduates. And if we're honest, honest, I think all of us have worried at some point that we are insufficient, that we don't compare well to those around us, that we'll try our hardest, do our best, and still come up short. Well, if you've wondered these questions, I have good news. Um, because Paul says that those feelings of inadequacy those feelings of weakness, a lack of confidence in himself, are at the heart of his witness. They are key to how he shares the gospel. And so if you're worried about your self-doubt, 
and feelings of insufficiency, you're actually in very good company. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 11, where Gregory read from this morning. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Paul writes those words, and he warns us that the danger is not in worrying that we are inadequate for what's next. The danger is in thinking that we are self-sufficient, that we have, separate and apart from God, everything we need. Because such an idea is, is sadly mistaken. And Paul paints what is really, in some ways, a pretty grim picture. We are these broken, cracked jars, barely hanging on, on the verge of falling apart. I try, you know, we don't have these clay jars sitting around, right, in our houses. Um, we actually, several years ago, got to go to Croatia, and we brought some of these back. You could just buy them. They had tons of them there. It was super cool. So I was trying to think, like, what's the modern-day equivalent of these cracked, falling apart jars. And the best I could come up with, it's as if Paul said, we are the trash red plastic solo cups littering lawns around here the morning after a UK game, right? It's, uh, it's not exactly flattering. And this sort of language where Paul basically revels in his weakness, it's seen throughout his writing to the church in Corinth. In his first letter to them, he says in chapter 2, verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And later in the same second letter we've been looking at, he, he says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And I think this sort of talk is pretty confusing when our culture preaches strength, success, confidence, self-actualization as the good life. Now, you may be familiar with a study that was done comparing the self-esteem of successful corporate executives with the self-esteem of young men in prison for violent crimes. And surprisingly, what they found was that the corporate executives scored much lower in self-esteem, whereas these men in prison for violent crimes had much higher self-esteem. And so what the study concluded was that those with higher self-esteem inevitably would run into situations that threatened their self-view. They would encounter someone who was critical of them or who was better than they were, or they would just fail at something. And if your life is built on your own sense of positive self-esteem, on your own ability to achieve and outdo others, then when it is threatened, your only options are to either begin to hate yourself for your failure or to hate the thing or person that threatened your sense of self. And that's what they concluded from this study. Did you catch it that right here in the middle of this study is the story of the gospel? I mean, what the study says is that no matter how strong or intelligent, 
No matter how charismatic or beautiful, no matter how much money you make or how persuasive your politic is, you will ultimately come up against a problem you cannot handle. Your strength will fail you. And we as Christians, we might describe it by saying that the effects of sin, our own and others, are beyond our ability ultimately to repair. And this study says that if your life is built on your ability to handle everything, then when you inevitably encounter something you cannot handle, your life falls apart. In fact, what the world primarily preaches is actually the opposite of, of Paul. It is this, it's, it, the, the world preaches this titanium-lined container that can withstand 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, but it's empty And when the pressure of life increases and increases and increases, it eventually collapses. And Paul, on the other hand, says, yes, I'm just a cracked red plastic cup. But what I have inside, what my hope is in, what my life is built on, is indestructible. And it is an unmistakable witness, a powerful living memorial to the world when your life is built on the uncrushable, certain hope of Jesus. And that perspective, that kind of life frees us from the constant struggle uh, and fight to prove ourselves, right? When we recognize our own weakness, we are freed to stop relying on our own selves and instead rely on Jesus. I was at a um, commencement last week, and the speaker was talking about growing up in South Missouri, which I don't know anything about. He said, when you're driving through South Missouri and you see a turtle on a fence post, well, you know what that means. And we all kind of sat in anticipation, like, what does that mean? (laughs) I had no idea. Is there some sicko out there stranding turtles on fence posts, you know? And he he never explained it. He just kind of kept going, and I was sitting there confused. I really got hung up on this idea, and I've been thinking about it, and maybe it's obvious to you, and it just wasn't to me at the time, but I think his point was this, that when you see a turtle on a fence post, I don't know if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, but if you ever do, you know it didn't get there on its own, right? It had to have help to get up there. Someone had to put it there. I, uh, man, <laughs> when I was, I used to be a youth minister in Nashville, um, and when I was there, there was this student, and his name was Danny, and Danny was a big guy, much bigger than me, and he didn't want anything to do with it, you know, his, uh, his family brought him, he didn't want to be there, and he did everything he could to let you know he didn't want to be there, you know, sat in the back, hood up, headphones in, never engage, you know, wouldn't, you know, go ask him a question, wouldn't talk back. And that's kind of, he made it through the whole youth group experience that way. Just totally don't want to talk, don't want to engage. And when the time came for him to graduate, uh, you know, in the non-COVID years, right, we have put together a video that has uh, 
our senior graduates talking and stuff. Uh, and so I was, I was doing that with him. I was videoing him and uh, asking him questions. And I've been building myself up for this conversation with him because I was like, this guy is about to graduate. I'm never going to see him again. I've never had a meaningful conversation with him once. I have, you know, I've not engaged him. I haven't, I've been too intimidated to even really try, right? And so I was like, I'm just, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to ask him like where his life is with God, what's going on with him spiritually. So I'm building myself up to it. We finished the interview, and finally I asked him, I said, you know, in, in a very, I mean, there was no uh, confidence or strength behind my words. I said, Danny, I mean, what's going on with you spiritually? And he said, well, I'm actually really glad you asked me that because I've been talking with my grandmother, um, and I, I really wanted to talk to you about getting baptized. And I was floored. I mean, I was totally, totally shocked, right? In all my time in ministry, I don't think I, I have put, like, less of an effort into connecting with a student. I don't think I've been more scared uh, than trying to connect with him. It, it was like weakness personified. In that moment, God worked, right? God was the one who was working all along through my weakness. I mean, my most foolish moments or when I revel in my own accomplishments. I didn't get there on my own. And there are a thousand names who have contributed in essential ways to my story. But it is ultimately God who is responsible for all that is good in my life. I'm really just a turtle on a fence post. And when we, when we rely on God instead of our own efforts, then when we fail, we aren't defeated. Because our hope isn't in our own success, but his power at work in our lives. And when we're perplexed, we don't despair. And when we're persecuted, we're not abandoned. When we're struck down, we're not destroyed. Because the power we rely on is not our own, but instead what Paul calls in verse 7, the all-surpassing power from God. Where we are weak, he is strong. Where we are inadequate, he is all sufficient. And it's a life like that, one that relies fully on his power and not our own, that Paul says will show the world who Jesus is. And so to all of us, here is the question. When the pressure of life mounts and you crack apart, what will people see inside Will they see the the crumbled remains of allegiance to a political party or the fractured pieces of a relationship you thought would never let you down? Hours of hard work and achievement that can never mend the brokenness of a sinful heart? Or will they see, when you break, a trust and reliance on Jesus? He died for you, rose for you, to rescue you because he loves you. And to our graduates who are graduating high school, uh, let me encourage you with this. The full life is not won through academic pursuit, the right connections, certain number of followers, romance, traveling the world, or finding yourself. Those things aren't evil, but they aren't the answer. They won't withstand all of life's troubles. Instead, the full life is found only in a life submitted to and reliant on Jesus and his love for you.
And so we pray the best for you, that your endeavors are successful, that you find wonderful community, that you grow through the difficulties you encounter. But most of all, we pray that you are living memorials, that your reliance on Jesus in moments of strength and weakness points others to him. And my personal hope is that um, as you go out, we get to watch and hear about how God is at work in your life. And like Paul tells Timothy to do in 1 Timothy 4.12, you become an example, a living memorial to us. And you inspire us here at Southside to live more fully for Jesus. I shared earlier uh, about my brother, Weston Roger Stewart. What I didn't talk about for once uh, was my son, Gavin. Gavin Weston Stewart. See, we named Gavin after my brother. So that when people ask his name and ask us if it means anything, we can tell them about Weston. Gavin is a living memorial. He tells the story. And if you are following Jesus, you're carrying Jesus' name the same way Gavin carries Weston's name. You're a living memorial. Your life, your story can let people know what happened and show them who Jesus is. Let's worship together. Let's all stand.